Hey, this is Natalie Berkman, and you're listening to the True Tunes Podcast. Play this record as frequently as possible. Then, as it becomes easier for you, play the record once a day or as needed. I was about 10 or 11 years old, I found myself drawn to music that could somehow point me toward the world I was meant for, the world as it was designed to be, while still sounding as if it was made by artists who were willing to tell the truth about this world, pain, shadows, beauty, and all. Music that was too focused on the darkness, or that even seemed to relish the pain and mayhem that was destroying my life and the lives of my friends. Well, I had no use for that stuff. Likewise, songs that ignored or whitewashed the brokenness and spoke only of glory, well, I just couldn't relate to those songs either. But the stuff that was stuck there in the middle, like I was, man, it became a lifeline for me. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, we will visit with Natalie Bergman, an artist who has been wowing alternative pop fans for the last 10 years as the sister half of the brother-sister duo Wild Bell. Back in 2019, just as her group was about to take the stage for a performance at Radio City Music Hall in New York, Natalie received word that her father, with whom she was very close, and her stepmother had been killed when a drunk driver crashed into their taxi. Bergman was devastated. She had lost her mother to illness when she was just 15 years old, and now, though clinging to her siblings, felt orphaned and alone. After several months of desperate grieving and some self-medicating, Bergman took her pain and questions to a monastery in the Chama Valley Desert in New Mexico, where she went for a silent retreat, listening and finding the Jesus she had been raised with, but in a new way. This Jesus was a lamp in the darkness, a present help, a lifeline for her. What happened next reminds me an awful lot of the stories I hear from the people who started singing about Jesus back in the 60s and early 70s, before there was such a thing as contemporary Christian music or Christian rock. With the backing of Jack White's Third Man Records, Natalie Bergman, as mainstream a pop artist as you are likely to find, just made one of the most endearing, powerful, and interesting Jesus music albums I've heard in decades. And today, we're going to hear about her fascinating, heartbreaking, and beautiful story. Thanks to Third Man, we'll take you on a tour of her new album, Mercy, along the way. And on the jukebox, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to jump half a century into the past and listen to some of the lesser-known Jesus music records that came out in 1971, or maybe a little earlier, like one of my favorites, Randy Stonehill's Born Twice. And for the first time on this show, you're finally going to hear my co-producer and chief enabler, Bruce A. Brown. Since I was born in 1970, most of what I know about what has been called the Jesus Movement is secondhand. It certainly shaped my early childhood. Bruce, however, was a teenager when these songs were coming out. He was learning them, getting the records, and going to see the bands. So, I'm going to ask him for some first-person details about those halcyon days, and he is going to play us some rare vinyl from his amazing collection. We'll talk a bit about when the movement started to transition into a monolith, 
as well. It's a Jesus Music Spectacular, this time on the True Tunes Podcast. Don't go away. The True Tunes Podcast will be back shortly. Welcome back to the True Tunes Podcast. When Natalie Bergman's first single, Talk to the Lord, dropped several months back, I did not know what to make of it. Though Third Man Records is certainly no stranger to gospel music, the stuff they have released previously has fit more into the roots gospel tradition. Bergman's style is singular. She blends retro girl group and soul elements with just enough modern alternative pop and world music to sound both perfectly hip and timeless. Two more singles came out over the ensuing months, including Shine Your Light On Me, with a video that we'll talk about a bit later. It became clear, though, that this woman is serious, both as an artist who writes, performs, and even produces this album herself, and as an eager and desperate believer, with a message of sincere hope to share with anyone experiencing loss, pain, or suffering. And if we're being honest, who does that not describe these days? Bergman spoke with me from her apartment in downtown Los Angeles just a few days before the release of her album, Mercy. She sat in a simple white room, which she promised was the quietest room in her apartment she shares with her friend, but was also quite echoey. I told her I liked it. It fit the vibe of her videos and photos, and I like to think that wherever she went, she just had natural reverb anyway. So, with a few pleasantries and some technical setups behind us, we dove right in. How in the world does a mainstream pop artist in an alternative rock label end up with one of the most compelling Christian albums of the last several years? This has been a a lovely album to just appear and it's so fun to encounter an artist that uh, we haven't heard before and songs that sound this developed and this thought through and so I wanted to start first by just asking you to tell me about your earliest memories of music and you must have a a rich musical story that got you to the point where you're able to do what you're doing and I got to hear it. Well, I definitely, I think I do have a rich musical um, history, and that's probably because I had two very musical parents, and they were always very encouraging of our musical endeavors and our artistic ideas, and um, one early memory I have is I wanted to play the violin, which is actually a pretty complicated instrument, and, and I started earliest. I started when I was five years old and my mother was friends with Allison Dalton, who was um, a member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. 
my parents took, they took me to the CSO to see a performance and I was so inspired and, and moved by the classical, the classical music. Um, it was so emotional to me. And so I fell in love with the, with the string instruments and I asked if I could play the violin and then my mother gave me lessons with Alison Dalton and that was kind of the first, it, the early experiences I had with music. I, I had access to this wonderful teacher and, and then I started studying Suzuki and those are great books for a child and an adult really. And pretty quickly after that, I, I found um, the piano and that was very linear to me and it made a little bit more sense than um, violin. It, it just felt like the, the tool I was lacking for songwriting. And so once I, once I started playing the piano, everything kind of clicked and I understood that I could accompany myself and sing along to the songs that I write. And um, I started writing music when I was about 10. I just had sweet little songs. <laughs> I always wrote love songs. I think I wrote my first love song on the ukulele because it's just such a, an easy instrument when you're a child. <laughs> I'd say that I have so many musical experiences growing up, whether it's playing with my mother. She, she loved playing jazz standards on the piano and she also played open D tuning, um, Joni Mitchell songs. And she loved folk music and, and wrote folk songs herself. And I had a really beautiful upbringing. So yeah, you, you, there's a lot going on in your music. There's a lot of different sounds and influences. So I could tell that this was something that had a lot of layers and a lot of experience in there. Was your family's faith woven into the way that you engaged music or were those kind of separate endeavors in your family? I think everything was really intertwined. Um, I had a non-denominational upbringing. I mean, we were a part of the Christian faith, but my parents were very free and loving in their beliefs and really they just promoted love in the household and um, I guess religious music of course entered into my life um, just singing hymns in church and then later on singing in a gospel choir at my school. My teacher Mr. Bell, he was a really cool unusual man he he was he could wail on the piano and he would kind of he would kind of rip stevie wonder songs and then change the lyrics and make them his own which is that's totally acceptable you know i have no problem admitting when i steal people's music or or you know it's like sometimes as a musician we're so we're so impressionable that we absorb everything. That's why I often try to not tune into um, my contemporaries because I don't want to be taking anything from them just on accident. 
But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure a couple of Michael Jackson uh, melodic lines have made it onto my records before, just un unconsciously, you know? Well, I'm pretty sure Stevie Wonder probably borrowed quite a few gospel licks and tricks in his music as well. So I'm sure that he probably owed a little bit back to the church, and I doubt he would argue that point with me. <laughs> For sure. So, and that was in Chicago that you were doing that? You were singing in a gospel choir in Chicago? That was in Chicago, and that was um, when I was in middle school. I my The two teachers, I was in all sorts of choirs when I was growing up, um, but... I never got a role in the musicals because, I mean, I started smoking weed when I was pretty young and I think that the my teachers thought that I wasn't going to show up for the musicals and so they never gave me a good role. And then Mr. Bell, he just took me under his wing and I was the head of the gospel choir. You know, he was like, look, it's not cool that they're not giving you roles because you have the best voice in the school. And so then he gave me this beautiful platform and I, I got to shine and I, I showed up and I, I did my work and I learned and, and, um, and, and that was, that was an informative time in my life. Jesus is coming and he's gonna take me home. I know where I'm going. Tell me about your, your parents continuing uh, interest in and support of your music uh, between when you were a kid and when you were an adult and started doing music with your brother. Um, well, first of all, Belle, Belle has sort of been, I love bells of all, all varieties. I love Mr. Bell, I love church bells. My middle name is Belle. Um, so that's where Wild Bell came from. Um, you know, my dad, became sort of one of my biggest champions in my career with Wild Bell. He was, he was in some ways my biggest fan and then also my biggest critic. And, and he had a very, he was a very smart man and very well versed in all styles of music. And he was a poet himself. And, and so language was such an important thing growing up, and, and it is, language is such a powerful vessel. He, we would have, we would battle about, we would sort of wrestle um, with my lyricism. He would sometimes ask me if this was the right thing that I was saying. Sometimes he would compliment me, but he just, he was very supportive and um, having him in my audience was the most useful it, he was the most useful part of a performance because he he saw me and then he could interpret me and he's the only person I really trusted to give me any sort of feedback because, you know, there's compliments of all sorts, but I, I want the truth of the performance and he was kind of my eyes. And so he was very valuable to me 
in that way. I mean, in so many other ways, but um, I'm, I'm lucky that I got to have him as eyes and ears and um, he, he was a very loving man. And, and so I, I, there was no shortage of support and love from him. Yeah. And your mother passed away. How old were you when your mother passed away? 15. Yeah. She, she was also extremely loving. I mean, I, I want, <laughs> I would like more time with my parents. I, I feel like they were stolen from me in a way. And, um, I also feel incredibly grateful for the years that I got to spend with them. And some people don't have a relationship with their parents at all. And I, I had a very beautiful one. And so, you know, after my mother died, that's when I started becoming close with my father. Um, and we had a cool relationship. He was, he was my ally and he was my mentor. This album, as beautiful and almost uh, shockingly beautiful, abruptly beautiful as it is, actually has its birth in tragedy. It comes out of the loss of your father, the um, the uh, the fact that he was suddenly taken from you. Tell me a little bit about uh, that. Uh, what happened and how that drove you into the journey that led to this record i think this album was written out of necessity and desperation i needed to understand death and i had an urgency to understand what happened and 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 why it happened and and what happens after death and i had all of these questions about heaven and afterlife and um I, I spent many months just in silence and um, I, I felt like I had lost my identity and I didn't know who I was as an artist or a musician anymore. And I, I really didn't think I could get back to music. And then music, as it always does, found me again. And, you know, it, it took several months, but these songs found me and, and they needed me to write them. And I, they flowed out of me pretty, um, pretty effortlessly. Um, I found that writing this album was a very healing process and it, it allowed me to examine my sorrow and through it, I, I found hope. And that's what I aim to inspire in those who listen to this this record and you've talked about how you actually went on a, a retreat at a monastery you kind of you went to some sort of spiritually guided retreat um, tell me a little bit more about that and what what inspired you to even do that <laughs> well um, I, I found that death is such an isolating experience and it's so personal and and individual and I was already 
I have my siblings who I love very much and we're there for each other and, and we're all very supportive of each other and our emotions and our well-being. Um, but I did feel as though I, I couldn't get any more alone. There, there was no more loneliness I could possibly experience. And so then I was like, oh, I know what will make me feel even more lonely and, and horrible. I'm going to go and I'm going to be alone in the wilderness. I think that will help me understand a few things. Um, and it certainly did. I had a lot of questions and I, I read a lot and I, I, I referenced the Bible and I listened to monks chant seven times a day and I spent seven days in silence and I listened. I listened and I received some powerful spiritual answers and once once I did my work there, I was able to start writing these songs and I understood that I had a a gospel record to write. <laughs> Your love is holy. That idea that that it was listening to, in the silence that let you start singing and writing is something really, really profound, and it's actually something really ancient. It's some Jesus had to go into the wilderness for forty days before he started his ministry. It's it's something that goes all the way back. One of the songs that really jumped out at me uh, is "Your Love Is My Shelter," and I I love how you. You're clearly talking about your father and this story of him having you come for a visit and planting these trees and this picture of these trees as a literal shelter and your father being your shelter. And the song is very directed at your father, but it seems like you're able to push even past your father to this other kind of shelter that you need that's even bigger than what your father could could be. And man, it just wrecked me. And and I, I just have found this this whole album on repeat and there's these meditative uh, steps throughout it that have been really um, very very helpful for me and some of the things some of the ideas that come out this this lyric you say in that song is your death is an amputation which I've many people have talked about that any chance you've read um, a grief observed after I lost my dad I, I read I read A Grief Observed. Um, he gave that book to me when my mom died and I didn't read it. And so I, I read it and I was just moved by the profound language of C.S. Lewis. I, he is so poetic. And I, that resonated with me so, so heavily. The amputation, when you're losing, when you lose somebody, yes, you have to go on, but you're missing 
you you need your hands to build things and make things and you can you can cut your arm off and your body will heal but you you still have those what is it phantom pains or i mean that that to be so literal but it's that spoke to me so deeply for months and months after my dad left my heart it was like i was having a constant heart attack i couldn't my heart pain would not let up and to the point where i thought i should go to the doctor because i was like am i having am i dying am i actually dying um it's death is so physically painful and cs lewis writes about it in a way that i can relate to Are you at all familiar with kind of the early, what they call Jesus music, the, the stuff that came out of the Jesus movement uh, in the late 60s and early 70s? Is that on your radar at all? Slightly, but can you educate me? Well, in a nutshell, at the tail end of the hippie movement in the 60s, when you know people had tried the kind of drug sex route and found it wanting, kind of after some of the bad news side of what happens when enough bad acid and heroin has not really answered your questions and you know that that thing there was a large revival really when millions of people young people kind of turn on to this idea of jesus but it's this very non-religious countercultural, grassroots kind of picture of jesus and hundreds of thousands getting baptized out in the ocean in Orange County. It, it really had its, it happened in Orange County. It happened in London. It happened in Chicago in the Midwest. You know, lots of young counterculture kids who were upset about Vietnam. They were upset about what was going on uh, with the military. They were upset about the civil rights struggles. And they start to turn to Jesus. And it turns out that this understanding of Jesus that's separated from the kind of religious political understanding of Jesus made all the sense in the world to these kids. And as a result, a lot of them who had been folk singers or rock singers or just started writing folk songs and rock songs about their new faith. And there was this moment of pretty amazing music that happened. And then, you know, in time, it kind of evolved into professional Christian music and it became you know what's contemporary Christian music today but between about 1967 and the early 70s there's this stuff that instead of calling it contemporary Christian music a lot of us would call it more Jesus music it's it's not really very self-conscious it's it's just and it's kind of all over from acid rock to singer-songwriter folk stuff and when I listen to your stuff it sounds so much like that and to me it's not the 
musical stuff, it's that lack of self-consciousness. It's that it's the just somebody genuinely saying, I'm unhappy with the circumstances I'm in and I'm looking to Jesus. And that's so similar to what that generation was doing. They weren't part of an industry. They weren't uh, satisfying a certain market's expectations. They, there was no radio market for what they were doing. They were just saying, Vietnam is a disaster. Jesus help. And they were writing songs like that. Jesus help. Come on, Jesus. Show up. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. And I, I, I would be happy to send you some of that music if you'd like to hear some of it because I've been studying it and writing about it for years. So I think you'd find some stuff that you would find really. That is so perfect. This is very exciting to me. And I, I'm like, I, I'm making Jesus music. <laughs> I'm a part of that. <laughs> awesome. Well, welcome. Welcome to the tent. Forget your heads and crown You'll soon feel fine Stop looking at the stars You don't live under the sun This seems like a good time to step away from my conversation with Natalie for just a few minutes and roll out the old True Tunes jukebox. This time, however, we're going to do something very different. I've asked my co-conspirator, mentor, co-producer, and longtime friend, Bruce A. Brown, to break his self-imposed radio silence and actually join me on mic for a special jukebox segment on Jesus music from 50 years ago. As much a fan as I have been of this music, I was born in 1970. Bruce, however, was a teenager soaking it all in. I asked him to get a microphone hooked up, grab some records, and take the witness stand here and give us a first-person account of what it was like 50 years ago this summer when all those hippies started singing about Jesus. Gonna run with Jesus, run with Jesus. And now, after uh, how many episodes we've got in the can, I finally have uh, talked my compatriot, my friend, my partner, who has way more experience behind a microphone than I do, Mr. Bruce A. Brown, into joining us in the interview suite, because he actually knows that you were there. I was a baby. I was I was not even one year old 50 years ago today. I was just a little bitty thing. You, How old were you in 1971 when this whole Jesus movement thing was going on? In 1971, I was I was 15, going on 16, and I had been in a, a choir for a year. I joined this choir that the Methodist Church uh, sponsored. They came around to our church at Easter of 1970, and they had maybe 15, 20 people. They had all the voice parts covered, yeah. uh, but they didn't have a drummer yet, so... Um, I joined to play drums, and then we ended up going a lot of places where people didn't really want to hear drums, so I taught myself how to play acoustic guitar. The funny thing is, is my musical world in 1971 was, was stuff like Santana and Jethro Tull and Yes and those sort of things. Uh, and then on this, this other side of the coin, I was singing with this church choir, 
we sang uh, from three or four different Christian musical books that were written by people like Kurt Kaiser and, and uh, Ralph Carmichael. And we would literally just sing through the whole book and uh, maybe sing some other stuff like uh, I Am the Resurrection and things like that as our sort of encores. But, but we basically just sang these, these musicals straight through. And that was different enough from what people were used to hearing in the church that it seemed really super contemporary and poppy to them. And this so, was not and, uh, like you were the only people experiencing this. This this was happening all over the U.S. in, in pockets kind of simultaneously. There was no centralized organizing factor, but it was just kind of happening all over the place. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, the, the only things that had penetrated the... Uh, the nationwide consciousness at that time, I think, were things like Superstar, which was, you know, sort of reviled and, and uh, criticized by a lot of the church. That's Jesus and Christ God- Superstar, the Jesus Andrew Christ Lloyd Webber. Right. Right, right. Yeah, and then uh, Godspell, which was sort of a kinder, gentler version of the gospel that was a little more accepted. And, you know, you had but- songs like Day by Day become top 40 hits. For you, as you saw things like Vietnam and the civil rights struggles, um, but you were growing up also in the church, uh, am I am I right? Was there some kind of connection between the social unrest and uh, what was happening in the world in the 60s and what was happening in the rock and roll culture and then this this Jesus thing that was going on and and how did how in your mind as a kid as a teenager how does all of that become this kind of wild uh spontaneous Jesus music thing you know that this this craziness before it becomes an industry what tell me about what that was like in real time as a kid it was such a big divide I mean at the end of 1969 um, you know, you had Woodstock earlier in the year, and then you had Altamont at the end of the year, where there was a death in the crowd at this Rolling Stones-sponsored thing. And you got Charles Manson on one side, and and then Jesus is is kind of the, um, I mean, not a kind of a very different uh, option than a lot of the sort of the way the road was rolling from the Aquarian uh, free love drugs kind of thing of the 60s as a kid in 1980 being 10 years old 11 years old i gravitated towards that quite a bit and that music and i started to hear that music like randy stonehill's born twice record which was already long out of print super hard to find just 10 years later in 1980 uh, 81 i had to go digging and digging and to try to find that thing but it's so ragged and so lo-fi and you know he looks like a homeless kid on the back you know it's it doesn't um feel polished at all Uh, and to me it just sounds so immediate and just edgy and almost desperate at times and then you got this song like i love you that sounds like boy if the eagles had cut that song it would have been a number one hit you know it yeah there's there's uh it's just such a great song jesus
That Randy Stonehill record, it's just a trip when you think, man, 50 years ago this year, Born Twice comes out, made with about 800 bucks given to Larry Norman by Pat Boone <laughs> when he goes, <laughs> when he walks up to his door and knocks on the door and says, I want to do this label. And uh, you just think of the, the chutzpah that those guys had. And When I go back and, and think about that time, uh, and, and this is going to sound very primitive to younger people in the audience but there were there were three tv networks there was no national christian press uh, to speak of there was no national christian radio and yet somehow this music got out there um, whether it was just from people um, having a band as what happened with both you and i having having a group come into their church and you know and sing some of this music or whether it was through traveling, through friends. I've got one album here by this group called Maranatha, and I noticed on the cover that uh, they're from New Jersey, but somebody had put an address sticker on the back, obviously when they, when they bought the record, from Long Beach, California. Wow. So I'm like, okay, in 1971, how does this music make it clear across the continent? Yeah. yeah. But stuff like that just, you know, con continues to amaze me. Another thing I was thinking about last night is like the Beatles. The Beatles were considered a regional band. I mean, look at England. England's not that big. You can drive right. across it in a day. Yeah. But there they were up in, in, in Liverpool, and they thought the biggest thing that could happen would be they would go to London and be accepted. Yeah. That was that was a huge goal for them. Right. And, and so, you know, but, but they have national radio and national television in, in, in England. And yet still, they thought the biggest accomplishment they could achieve would be to make it to London. We have examples, when we, when we talk about the Jesus movement and this revival of uh, millions of people, especially young people, um, turning on to Jesus, uh, getting excited about this kind of countercultural vision of Jesus, thousands getting baptized in the ocean out in California, the the radical urban uh, communes like Jesus People USA and Chicago First in Milwaukee and Resurrection Band coming out of that. Uh, we got the stuff going on in London, you know, this these pockets kind of happening around the country. And then we tend to think about the the artists you know, the Larry Normans, the Love Song, even Resurrection Band, there's some that have survived because they kept going and they kept making records. And so eventually a larger number of people heard them. But along the way, there were hundreds of people making this music and making records was really difficult. And it was, it was hard to record stuff, especially of any quality, but some things were recorded and just lost like we don't even know who these people necessarily were we have no way of contacting but there's there are collectors out there that have amassed some of this really obscure stuff but sometimes if we don't really take the time to to listen we can think oh jesus music was you know phil keggy and um larry norman right. and love song 
and that stuff certainly is part of the mix no doubt about it but there was a lot wasn't there that was happening that was a lot more ragged and a lot more regional and a lot smaller and in some cases really out there we've been traveling down this long long road for many many years we've been singing for the lord telling souls how much he cares for many years i've labored here through the heat and cold traveling down the path of sin not thinking where i'd go if suddenly death should overtake, what would my answer be? Would my poor soul be doomed for hell throughout eternity? Uh, uh, our guest Natalie uh, Bergman if she had heard if she was familiar with even something called Jesus music and you know she's well educated she's in her early 30s you know she, she's a, a professional trained very sophisticated musician. musical tastes too she knows about well traveled yeah, right, and yeah, yet right. you know you would think if anybody would, would have heard of this uh, it would be somebody with with those kind of credentials and yet she was mystified by the idea yeah. and it's like this whole thing happened uh, in, in another era and it just uh, you know has totally escaped people's consciousness I'm, partly I'm I think because it evolved into CCM music right. which kind of became its own thing and put up walls and, and sort of intentionally became a separate world and you know yeah I, I, I've been a pretty savvy collector. I don't have as deep a collection as some people, but I've, you know, think I'm pretty well informed about obscure things. And it wasn't until uh, till YouTube became sort of uh, that I even knew a lot of this stuff existed. I, I had never heard of Isabel Baker, this teenager from the Midwest who made a, a guitar record when she was 16 in the mid-60s. I'd never heard of this group, the Click Kids, who... Uh, made a record in 70 or 71 you know it's amazing to me that the stuff is out there and uh um the diversity within the styles like you're saying there's there's stuff that's very pop and there's also this really um acid rock uh kind of psychedelic stuff
Jerusalem, Urbild unserer Städte. Jesus sieht, was uns bedroht, sieht es Unheilskette. When I was growing up, if you heard anything at all about religion in in the mainstream, it was uh, you know advertisement for a, a Billy Graham crusade or something like that. You just you had your local church, and then you just didn't hear anything about religion on the news. And then suddenly, in 1969, 1970, there were these stories coming out of California about this little church that met in a tent and then went over to the beach and started uh, baptizing all these kids. But the thing that made the news was the novelty of that. It wasn't that the music was was the driving thing. It was that the, the kids were, you know, believing one way, and now they're believing another way. Right. And the whole phenomenon of them going to the beach and being baptized in the ocean and being thousands and thousands of kids. But fortunately, you know, there was somebody like Chuck Smith who had the, the prescience to go, okay, well, we need to record this music and uh, have something to give back to all these kids that are coming in. We can't just have them singing hymns. That's, you know, we'll lose them. Right. Little country church on the edge of It's very plain to see It's not the way it used to be Preacher isn't talking about religion no more He just wants to praise the Lord People aren't as stuffy as they were before They just want to praise the Lord And it's very plain It's not the way it used to be And it's interesting also, I think, that uh, as much as I've always wished I could have been at Explo 72, which for people that aren't familiar was a massive Campus Crusade for Christ gathering in Dallas, uh, that uh, numbers vary depending on who you ask, but um, it was really a, a, a conference for college students who are interested in missions work, but it it drew anywhere from 80,000 registered people to up to a couple hundred thousand, maybe more, to the concerts that they held. And Johnny Cash was a part of that thing. Chris Christopherson was a part of that thing. Larry Norman was a part of that thing. Andre Crouch and the Disciples were a part of that thing. Um, that event, a lot of people called it the Christian Woodstock. And right. some people, I think, mistakenly say, well, that was the beginning of the Jesus movement, or that was the... Am I right that really, 
Explo 72 is when you start to see, you know, some people observing that there's enough of an audience here to start to form record labels and to start to form a distribution network for getting this music out to people. Maybe some radio stations start to think, well, we should program some of this and find some slots for some of this. And so really the, the Christian music industry starts to gel. Am I reading too much into that? Or do you think that about 1972 is when the Jesus music era starts to evolve into the contemporary Christian music era? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Explo was kind of the coming together of two worlds. Like you said, you had Johnny Cash there, who was a fairly new believer. He had always sung uh, gospel music, even going back into the 50s. But this was sort of his coming out as a recognized person of faith. And you had Christofferson, and then you had Billy Graham. Those were sort of the establishment people. And then bringing the, those two worlds together was Love Song, Larry Norman, people like that. Upon This Rock had come out a couple years earlier. And then you had um, Randy Matthews' first album came out on Word in 1971. But he hadn't yet gone full hippie. If you look at his first album for Word, he was still right. sort of very conservative. He, he did mostly his own songs, but he did Larry Norman songs. He did a Ralph Carmichael song on that album. So... They weren't quite sure yet how this was all going to go, the, the, late, the record companies and the publishing companies. And suddenly, Love Song got signed uh, to the Good News Records, which got distributed into regular uh, music stores through United Artists. I, w I was working across the street from a record store back then, and I went in and saw this album, and... Uh, the guys who ran the store knew that, that I was a Christian and were always sort of looking out for that stuff for me. And they had this whole box of love song records that the United Artists salesman had left there. He's like, I don't know what to do with these things. And this was what they called a head <laughs> shop, a hippie, a hippie right. record store. And he's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with these things. Here, here's a box of promos. See what you, <laughs> see what you can do with these. Sweet, sweet 
you'd only stop and touch me If you'd only stop and touch me If you'd only stop and touch me I know I could see If you'd only stop and touch me And so as as the industry starts to gel and, and this Christian music kind of takes on the characteristics of a genre, the market starts to become defined. A lot of that really wild, raw kind of stuff, it, it either acclimates into what the industry and the market is starting to evolve around, or it self-selects out and either goes into the mainstream, or it just goes away you know and so the right the we, we really do see that 50 years ago this summer is kind of a line of demarcation i think you know there's exceptions for sure there's still right. records like the like the record that came out for record store day last year that jesus people music record that's a collection of these obscure uh, some of those songs were actually post 1972 and were still obscure psychedelic you know kind of records but, right um, but generally speaking that, that Jesus music era kind of started to fade by 1972 when the CCM era started to emerge. And so kind of like fading one record out and fading another record in, you know, there's going to be a little crossfade maybe between the two. There wasn't really any advertising for this stuff, and so therefore there wasn't really any way to market it. Uh, it was still kind of um, people like Billy Ray Hearn from Word having this vision that... Uh, it wasn't a marketing tool yet. It was still a, more a ministry tool. Yeah. The impetus for the reason that this music existed. You, you talk about some of the stuff you listen to the record and you're like, what were they thinking? What did they think that they were going to accomplish with some of this stuff? It's so out there. It's so strange and it's so small and regional and it was recorded in somebody's house or something like that. What did, what were they thinking? You know, but when I listen to some of that stuff, and it's kind of like when I'm listening to, to Natalie's record, which is why to me this feels so connected to Jesus music, is that there's a very different impetus behind it, uh, which is to me much more connected to what a lot of artists are doing, which is simply reacting in a moment. Right. They're having an emotional reaction to what's going on around them, and it's a gut reaction as opposed to a calculated strategized reaction that's about either advancing a career building a ministry platform accomplishing something that's very sophisticated there's not a lot of sophistication going on with a lot of this stuff it's just right. an impulse and yeah see i'm like i'm i'm not a songwriter my first instinct would not have been to assume this was going to work <laughs> but then <laughs> right. you listen to like what natalie was saying about uh, the passing of her dad and like, well, of course, I'm going to write about this. I'm yeah. going to process his death through my art. So this is an organic, honest thing for artists to do. Um, and I don't think that it's necessarily bad for there to have been an industry or a genre that evolved. That's also a natural thing to have happen. But it sure is fun to strip all that away again and go back and listen to something and then remember what it's like to just hear these, these impulsive... Uh, reactive, genuine moments. Right. Well, the jukebox is smelling a little bit hot. Maybe we should unplug her <laughs> and push her back into the shade a little bit. But uh, thanks for letting me turn the microphone on. You'll you'll probably live to regret that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
Thank you, Bruce. Our Patreon members are going to be getting a massive mix of Jesus music from Bruce. So make sure to consider joining us there. And we're going to post a shorter list on the show notes page. We'll post a special Spotify mix there as well. But for now, let's get back to my conversation with Natalie Bergman. You're able to kind of go into some really interesting psalm-like dark places lyrically, but then musically, you're coupling it with a sonic thing that is not overly dark. It's it's buoyant and melodic, and you know. So tell me about once you started to think, okay, these are songs that are coming out. How did you start to conceive of this? How did you start to imagine this whole thing and conceive of all of those parts? while still going through that stuff yourself. Well, I was listening to this Johnny Cash song every morning. It's called, It Was Jesus. It's a very hopeful, uplifting song. And it occurred to me that there are music allows for those hopeful feelings. And I mean, rather than wallowing in my sadness and and I started making all of this visual work which was very dark and it just was it just reeked of death and that that was very important for me to make but it didn't feel like what my dad embodied here on earth and I wanted to honor him and so then I started seeing colors and 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 i started making these banners that were playful and childlike and and that to me was a a way more pure um interpretation of his life on this earth rather than his death and i didn't just want to be focusing on the death itself i wanted to celebrate his life and my life and the beautiful gift that life is. And so I started making this colorful work and that felt kind of, it resonated with me. And then I'm listening to these up-tempo, joyful Johnny Cash tunes and he's singing about Jesus. And and I'm like, wait a minute, I wanna sing about Jesus. And I, you know, Johnny Cash was, he was so cool because he, you didn't have to be a believer to love his music. And that's kind of what I want this music to do. I, I think it's um, I think it can speak to all all varieties of people, religious or non-religious. Um, so I started. Let's see. This song "Shine Your Light on Me." That was kind of a playful tune. It's it's definitely it speaks on the topic of sadness and sorrow, as do most of these songs. But I was like, okay, well, what about having a kind of Motown feeling, you know, Diana Ross and the Supremes girl group style song that like feels like you can dance to it, but then the topic is is very sad. That felt like it was the right the right song for me to write at the moment. And then another one, I will praise you. I wanted to write these kind of wake up anthems, you know, like the same way this little light of mine gets in you and and puts a little pep in your step. I, I wanted to I wanted to create some joyfulness around the music.
starting with that song, it's got that kind of Afro beat influence in it, which fits in the gospel style really, really well. How does that, all of those different sonic elements, where does that come from in your music? Like what kind of influences and ideas have all been um, speaking into to that side of what you do? The, the roots run deep. <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about anything. The, the songs truly just came out of me. And I, I, I knew that once I wrote a couple of songs, about Jesus, I was like, I should write an entire album about Jesus because it just felt like then it becomes a conceptual project. I guess speaking on some of the influences, you know, those high life guitars, I've always been attracted to high life music. And to be honest with you, I, I can't claim that this is really a gospel record because I'm not, I don't come from black churches, but I will say that black musicians, without black musicians, none of my music would exist. Their contributions to American music and pop music, there would be no rock and roll without black music and black musicians. Um, and that's, you know, I I just owe my career to, to that style of music, to be honest with you. And, um, I don't want to claim any ownership over these styles. Um, None of us can own any of that stuff. But what I what I love is that you have all of that in your toolbox, and 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 that's kind of going to surprise some people when they look at you or they don't know who you are, and they're going, "What? Where is this coming from?" You know, it's that this is a journey and a work you've been doing for a long time. You've been accumulating those skills and those styles for for quite a bit now. This is not something you're just stumbling into. So. You're also referenced, I mean, just in the, in the song Shine Your Light On Me, you've got probably at least three major scriptural ideas, and and then you do it in a way that's, with even with the video, like so stylized, and you know, even you got, got that kind of sexy Motown thing, and then you got that dress, and some people will, some especially religious people, might immediately kind of go, wait a second, this doesn't look like gospel music. But then I'm thinking, wait a second, I, I'm kind of picking up like, shine your light on me. Like she's literally shining a light on, on herself and it's reflecting off. Like, is there, there's kind of a design going on visually to this whole thing. Oh, absolutely. Everything has been very intentional with the artwork and with the music and um, the reflective material I wanted to bring those mirrors on. I wanted to wear the mirrors because it's true. That's that's what I'm hoping to do. I, I, I need a little light and I want to shine a little light. Um, and that was, that was one of my favorite videos to film. I had such a stellar team of people that worked with me and um, our friend Han Rui Wang, she designed the set and we kind of just had a conversation back and forth for about two months. Um, these visual performances require a lot of moving parts and, and a lot of minds. And so I had a third man help with that and, and I got some of my best friends to perform with me and it was a treat to make that film. Let's take it from the top. Come on, shine your light on me, sweet Jesus. Jesus, I've been walking in shadows, 
way you use your voice as a singer is really interesting to me. Like you seem to kind of have different, uh, you use your voice as an instrument in different ways. You, you can pitch it up really high and breathy. You can do it much more straight and unaffected. How do you think through your voice as an instrument? And then when you're doing a project like this, where you're the songwriter, you're the artist and you're the producer, uh, and you're the you're the human being that went through this experience. How are you imagining and and positioning your actual vocal technique throughout this? And how does that speak into how these songs are delivered? I think that my voice has the ability to take different forms and shapes. And sometimes I feel like I want to sing low and I want to you know wail on the low notes but on this album I felt very childlike um, when I was writing these songs and I felt kind of like this this abandoned child and and so my voice becomes a little bit smaller on some of these tunes and I kind of took on this childlike persona lyrically and sonically and um, that's not to say that's my my only facet, that's not my only angle, but for this album I thought it lended itself nicely to, to these tunes. Yeah, I think it does. And that's that's a that's a great um, artistic uh, way to visualize that. So do you imagine or understand this to be a project that kind of lives in its own zone and then you'll move on and go back to doing other stuff or do you do you kind of see that this experience has shifted who you are as an artist and this this new understanding or or evolved understanding of Jesus is going to inform your songwriting and your artistry on a go forward basis I think that as an artist I I have changed um since the event of my father's death I I don't feel like I'm the person I was before that, even the day before that happened. Um, so, I mean, this is who I am. I don't know if I will so explicitly sing about Jesus in all of my music. You know, I, I, um, I don't know if I'll sing about my dad in every song. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of topic. There's a lot of heartbreak in this world. Um, outside of my father's death. And, and so um, I'm not sure what the next album will be. I've started writing a couple of love songs um, and I'd like, to, I'd like to put out another solo album. I'd love to put it out on Third Man. And as far as Wild Bell goes, Wild Bell is on hiatus right now, but I'll make music with my brother for the rest of my life. Sweep me away from my deep ache Your love will set me free He makes the flowers bow and bend And the sparrows sing Keep me in exile here on earth This might be a little bit of a presumptuous question, so forgive me if it is, but 
when you sit and listen to this thing or if you've talked to your brother and your other siblings about it how crazy madly in love with this album do you think your dad would have been that is a great question i actually think that if he heard the song home at last he would think that's the greatest song i've ever written um i i think he he at one point in my life early on in my career i in interviews i would talk a lot about my mother and her role in my life as an artist and as a mother um and he he one time he would be mad at me for saying this but one time he said you know you always talk about your mom in interviews but you don't really talk about me that much and he was feeling a little left out because he was so present in my life and he was so supportive of my music and and i wasn't giving him props in my interviews um and now i i have this whole body of songs um, that are really devoted to him and their tribute. This album is, a, a tr it's truly a tribute to my father and, and his love. And um, I think he would, there are some songs he would probably be uncomfortable with. I don't think he'd like the gallows because <laughs> it kind of, um, it kind of pushes and, and, and um, antagonizes God a little bit. And it's, sort of the punk in me being like how the fuck did you let this happen um but then there are songs that he would i think he'd really like shine your light on me and he'd he'd really love that video and i this album is so much like my father if if anything if anything else this is really just a reflection of who he is last thing i'll ask is just um as you've gone through this journey, the stuff that you've learned, any words of encouragement or advice you would have to the people out there that are listening, that are experiencing loss? You know, a lot of people are, are on the verge of losing their faith because of the fear and the anger that they see going on around them in the name of Jesus, in the name of faith. Uh, a lot of people are losing loved ones because of COVID or because of uh, financial problems, you know, any any kind of words of comfort or encouragement that you could offer to people or feel comfortable offering uh, that you, from from your experiences? I think that it takes a lot of courage to have faith in this world. And it's it's very hard to see the light sometimes. But if if you can have the strength and if you can have the courage to to persevere and, and to see the light, it's it's the greatest gift of all. For me, when I've gone through something hard and I'm able to share that, like what you've done, and then somebody finds blessing in that, it makes the pain that I went through feel redeemed, like like there was some purpose in it. So uh, you've already done that with the, with the work that you've done musically. So um, I, I really encourage you in that and, and appreciate that you've done that it's it's a it's a huge blessing so well thank you so much for your beautiful thoughtful questions and your time today and it's just been a pleasure talking with you you're lovely and and kind and it's just i really enjoy our conversation well thanks for taking the time and and uh, i look forward to introducing a whole lot of people to you and and this album because it's gonna it's gonna knock people out in the right way come to you to answer my prayer 
I don't know if I'm stepping up on my little soapbox on this episode or just kind of pulling it out from under the bed and sitting on it here with my face in my hands, but hearing Natalie's story has really hit me hard. Here is a young woman, a skilled and experienced artist who, in the face of devastating personal loss, found a way to listen hard and wound up hearing the voice of the man of sorrows. She then processed that experience, the grief and lament and joy and confusion, all of it, in the language with which she was most familiar. The result, this Jesus music, is powerful because of its simplicity. Is there a market for this? Is there an industry? Does it fit into a genre? Or is it bigger and smaller than all of that? What I can say with some degree of confidence, as a person who has spent his career in and around professional Christian music, loving gospel music, loving rock and folk and alternative music, is that when I hear songs that remind me that I am not alone in my loss, that brokenness and death are not the laws under which this world is supposed to labor, and that even Jesus, the embodiment of love, knows what it is like to feel pain and fear, those songs make me want to sing along. That is the kind of Jesus music that became the soundtrack to a revolution half a century ago as millions of young people discovered that wounded savior, that suffering servant, by looking past the dueling distraction of both secular and religious empire. And from the sound of it, Jesus is still singing his songs over us. Jesus music keeps being composed in the unlikeliest of places. Why would it be any other way. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Natalie Bergman, for being so generous with your time. You can get Natalie's incredible album, Mercy, at independent record stores everywhere. Find out more at thirdmanrecords.com. You can also find all kinds of links to Natalie's amazing music videos and more on the show notes page for this episode at truetunes.com. 
Thanks, as always, to my co-producer and compatriot Bruce A. Brown, especially for his extra work on our jukebox feature this time. And if you are interested in more classic Jesus music info, make sure to check out our interview with Larry Norman from several episodes ago. And to all of our new listeners, welcome. We've got a lot for you to discover on our previous episodes and some really fun stuff coming up very soon. Make sure to leave us a good review over at Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Follow me on Instagram at TheOnlyJJT and at TrueTunesMusic and on Twitter at John J. Thompson. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 6040. One Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT, inviting you to keep your ears tuned for those songs that stir the good, the true, and the beautiful in you. Lord knows we have had enough of the other stuff. Thanks.